Hey, y'all give it up for these who are leading worship for us this morning. Appreciate you guys. And no, many of them come very early on Sunday mornings and are here all three services. So we're so blessed to have them. Hey, if you got a Bible, Colossians chapter 3 in your New Testament this morning, Colossians chapter 3 is our text. I, I do feel like I just want to encourage some of you, uh, especially those of you who are Concord members, if you can help us out in the days ahead, that would be tremendous. Oftentimes we've done this in the past where when 11 o'clock began to get really full, we invited some of you to venture over into the 9.30 worship hour. And the 9.30 worship hour is just as good as 11 o'clock. So I would love for you to come and be a part of that and free up some seats for some of our guests. So uh, all of you who will do that, would you just signify by lifting up your hand? I'm just messing with you. But anyway. Can you hear me now? That one phrase has been made popular by the Verizon commercials. They are bragging about their ability to keep individuals connected uh, via cell phone. And I know many of you, just as I have, have experienced the frustrating reality of dropping a phone call. And maybe you've been on a phone like I have and three paragraphs into uh, this entire dialogue, you realize that the other end is absolutely dead. So then you call them back and you ask them, can you hear me now? You know, as we consider that particular question, we want to drop it down in the context of marriage. There are wives here today who really need to look at their husband and say, can you hear me? And also there are some husbands here today who need to look at their wives and ask the exact same question, can you hear me? Over the next couple of weeks, we want to focus primarily on how to build a climate in the home that actually helps communication occur between husband and wife. Do you know a married couple can live together and not actually have good communication? Now, if your husband don't nudge your wife here and vice versa, matter of fact, this sermon is a hard one. I would encourage you to keep your elbows tight. I've often called this the roommate syndrome. This is where a husband and a wife, they share a roof over their heads each night, but they do not really share a life together. They see one another daily, but rarely speak to one another on an intimate level. I've even heard it described as two ships crossing one another in the sea each day. You know, every marriage faces a massive assault from the enemy of our souls, who is the devil. Jesus calls him a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And one of the main ways that our enemy is seeking to find success in the battlefield of marriages is attacking our communication. I think we would all agree that communication is vital to any relationship's growth and success. A 19th century playwright and novelist has written this, quote, ultimately the bond of all companionship whether in marriage or in friendship, is conversation. However, that breaks down unity when conversation does not occur in marriage. Focus on the families. Dr. Paul Reiser writes this, quote, Nothing kills a marriage more than when a husband or a wife wakes up one morning and begins to think, I don't really know the other person in my bed anymore, and I'm not sure I really want to. Your spouse is going to change. And so will you. The question is, how will you handle the change that children, retirement, or financial losses bring? 
Will those changes draw you and your spouse closer emotionally, or will they push you further apart? Now, if we're going to be drawn closer to our spouses over time, it's absolutely vital that we learn to communicate well. So we ask the question of our New Testament, is there anything in the Scripture that actually teaches us how to experience unity in our marriages? And believe it or not, there is a text that we draw our attention to today to find some principles that we can apply to our marriages that will create a climate for open, good, and godly conversation. That kind of conversation which is below the surface and more so on an intimate level that draws two hearts together. So today we're going to look at communication killers. Next Sunday we will look together at communication enhancers. So with that in mind, we look at Paul the Apostle's letter to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 3. So stand with me, if you will, in honor of God's word this morning. And before we jump right into the text for this morning, let me give you a quick backdrop of Colossians chapter 3. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He's encouraging the church to live in harmony and in unity. He encourages them in Colossians chapter 3 to take off the old self and to put on the new self. He uses the imagery of taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. It's the idea of taking off your old way of thinking and living before you came to know Jesus personally and now putting on your new clothes, your new way of thinking, your new way of living as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So Paul would say to us who are disciples, we have died to our old, former way of living and thinking. We are now, listen, alive because of the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts so that we might carry out a new life which reflects his character and his conduct. So with that in mind, we note what Paul is encouraging these individuals within the church to take off and what to put on. They are attitudes and actions to remove and there are new things that we need to put on. So look with me, Colossians 3, verse 8. You've got it there in front of you. Say yes. The Bible says, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now it's interesting, Paul tells them to take these things off so that their life is changed by the renewing of their mind in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to apply these principles right in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 and 19 to the marriage. So look at that. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And these principles that we will learn today not only apply to marriage, but they apply to church life, marriage life. They apply to fathers and children. They apply, as the scripture says, to slaves and masters, which also would include bosses and workers. So even if you're not married this morning, don't sit back and think the message is not for you. God still has a word for you. Amen? Let's bow together. Father, take the word, place it into our hearts, and make us more like your son, Jesus. Revive marriages. Put a hand on the wife who is about ready to give up. Put a strong arm upon the husband who is close to throwing in the towel.
And we'll give you glory for how you work this morning. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. So you can be seated. Notice again, verse 8. He says, but now you also put them all aside. Put them all aside. It's an awesome term. Literally a strong term that means to cast off, to put away, or to get rid of. Even semantically, it could speak of casting someone into prison. And I can get down with that imagery because Paul the Apostle is in jail right now as he is writing this particular letter. And it would help you, as it helped me, I believe, to picture anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, slander, and lying as individual people standing up in a police lineup. Or maybe it would help you, as I recalled yesterday at a gas station, sitting at the counter was a small paper that read on the top of it, busted. Have y'all seen these before? I always look at them to see if there are any church members staring back at me, right? But really, if you will just imagine for a moment that we have picked up the paper today and there is the busted of White County and Hall County times. Are y'all listening? And now here they are, picture them. There is anger, you see him. There is wrath, malice, abusive speech, lying. Paul the Apostle would say, cast them all into jail. Do not allow them to have any authority in your life. Paul writes to the Romans as well and says, do not allow sin to have mastery over you. In other words, he's saying, don't let sin tell you what to do. And that's what anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, and slander, and lying do. They seek to take control of your life and encourage you to do things that would damage your marriage relationship. So this morning, the outline of the sermon is extremely simple. All I did was a word study on those six phrases, and we're going to talk about putting those phrases in jail today. Here's the reality, and look at me closely, eyeball to eyeball. For some of you today, as a husband, one of these things that were read off of the list are alive and well in your life. The same would be true for some of you who are wives. One of these, which were read off of this police lineup, are true in your life. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would work and bring about conviction upon our souls where we need to experience confession of sin, repentance of heart, change of living. So with that in mind, the first attitude that we need to throw into prison is anger. Put away anger. That's what Paul says in verse 8, but now you also put them all aside, anger. You know, nothing kills communication quicker than a short fuse. Paul describes here an abiding, habitual anger that includes in its scope a desire for revenge. It's when you live with great anger towards your spouse that you are seeking to give the devil a foothold in your marriage. Now the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Anger is the natural response of our old nature when we don't have our personal needs met. And too often in marriages, one spouse seeks to have his or her needs met completely and fully in the other person. And I would encourage you here this morning, because I need all of us to grab hold of the reality that a spouse will not fulfill the longing in your soul which Christ has come to fill. If we are not careful, we seek to 
make our spouses out to be our personal Messiah. And they always check up short, and as a result, anger begins to take control. Too often in marriages, one spouse seeks to have his or her needs met completely and fully in the other person. And whenever we feel that our rights have been violated or our expectations have not been met, that is when we are set off. James questions in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He's like, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In other words, he's saying, what are you arguing about? And then he describes it. It's not the source of your arguments Your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So the Bible teaches that what stirs up anger are our own pleasures that wage war within our souls. See, we not only fight against all of the fallen angels who are now demons, But we also fight against our own flesh, our carnality, our old way of thinking and living. In fact, James calls it pleasures that wage war within. And that word pleasures is the Greek word hedonon, where we get the English word hedonism. Hedonism, according to one commentator, is that playboy philosophy that makes pleasure mankind's chief end and still wages battles in the hearts of people. As I was studying, I read many books on marriage, and one of them that caught my attention was a book entitled The Art of Marriage. And in this book, I read, Murder, Fights, and Quarrels, Three Responses to the Inner Battle of Our Passions. Murder is the extreme. Y'all agree with that? It's pretty interesting. Billy Graham's wife was asked on one occasion, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? To which she responded, divorce, no. Murder many times. Murder's the extreme, yet Jesus Christ reminds us that the outward action of murder begins in the heart. Quarrels, though not as serious as murder, are often rooted in the same desires for control and manipulation. If you find that you walk around the house always ready for a fight, Constantly taking opportunity to jab your husband or spouse to get even with them, you are living in anger. And Paul says, throw that attitude in jail. Do not allow it to have authority in your life. The second attitude to put away is the attitude of wrath. Wrath, there in verse 8, is a close brother to anger and likewise destroys unity in marriage. But wrath is an inward boiling agitation with someone. Unlike a short fuse that blows up with anger, wrath sees on a situation. I would characterize wrath more as like a volcano. It's a mixture of resentment and bitterness beneath the surface. Everything that the husband or wife does only adds to the temperature of that hot lava within Nothing is seen as right or appreciated by the spouse. Love has grown cold, and dare I say, hatred is boiling. Friday after lunch, I sat in a chair to get my hair cut, which I will say looks good. (laughs) But I sat there. I love going there to get my hair cut. It gives me an opportunity to share more of Christ with the lady who cuts my hair and She knows I'm a preacher, so she asked me what I was preaching on this weekend. So I unloaded the whole message on her, right? 
But as I share with her a little bit about wrath, she pointed at the chair that I was sitting in and said, you will be shocked at how many wives sit in that chair and talk about how they cannot stand their husbands. She even said that she was overwhelmed sometimes and even taken aback when a wife would say, I do not like my husband anymore. It's one thing for those who are outside of the faith, who do not have a relationship with Jesus to act this way. But it's an entirely different thing for followers of Christ to act in this manner. And somebody says, oh, wait a minute, sin is sin. No, 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 sin is worse for the follower of Jesus. Well, why is that? Because you know better. And it is true that wrath often takes root in the hearts of people, even in the church. And the attitude is easily identifiable because when you think about your spouse, there are no feelings of appreciation, no feelings of joy. You only think about what gets on your nerves. You only think about what he or she is doing or not doing that drives you insane. And when your spouse is in the room, there is a tension between you that is almost tangible. You can cut the tension with a knife. Shows up even in your body language. You sit facing away from one another. You find other things to occupy your time. You find other people to occupy your conversations. There's very little talking, if any at all. Now, as I was studying that word wrath, I began to wonder what is it that would really cause such a seething, boiling wrath in the heart of a person. And as I read through many marriage books, one common reason for this kind of attitude taking root in the life of a person began to surface. And one of those common reasons dealt with the subject of the problem between a husband and a wife with their ability to manage money well. The subject is typically ignored in the marriage or there is such fear concerning the subject that no conversation is ever brought up. And yet, even though there is no speaking about the issue, there is this inward resentment toward the wife, perhaps, for spending too much money, towards the husband, perhaps, for hiding some money. And this anger, this wrath, begins to build an invisible wall between the husband and the wife. There's no communication. And wrath, when it takes genuine root, is like bitterness, which causes you to look at your spouse negatively no matter what he or she does. And at many moments, wrath, like a volcano, can explode. In fact, the same Greek word for wrath is also used to describe outbursts of anger. This can lead a person to sudden violent behavior. Throwing things, slamming doors, punching walls, and even physical spousal abuse, wrath. These actions are not remotely close to the behavior which should be expressed by a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were in your house throwing stuff at your spouse, you've got a problem. Repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit is what you need. Cast wrath into jail. 
There's a third attitude here. It's the attitude of malice. Malice is intent on displaying itself. It's the act of doing something simply for spite. The goal is to get on someone's nerves. Now, I've seen this repeatedly in the life of my own four children. It's amazing. We ride in the Honda, Honda, Honda minivan that they continue to provoke one another to anger. Get on it. And it's amazing to me because we have so many things now in the van to get their attention. We've got headphones. We've got a television that falls out of the ceiling. You would think they could get along. I looked in the rearview mirror just yesterday, and I will not tell you which little girl it was, Maddie. I just did. But she had both fists balled up going after her sister. Good night, calm down. You acting like your mama. I'm just kidding. Good news is she's not here. Now, it's one thing when we see children 10 and under acting this way, but it's an entirely different thing when grown people act this way. The word chosen by Paul, the apostle from malice, in many cases, is translated wickedness and evil. I thought this was interesting. Paul says, it, or Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and 1, putting aside all malice like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So I found that interesting. Peter said that if you desire to injure others, if you have malice in your heart, it actually hinders you from receiving the Word of God into your life for spiritual maturity. And so there are some individuals, perhaps husbands or wives, who may come to church and they will go to a community group and even come to worship and leave and say, I got absolutely nothing out of the whole thing. So a question would be, do you have malice in your heart? If you desire to hurt your spouse for whatever reason, be it verbal, emotional, physical, or mental, you will not be able to move forward with genuine godly communication with your spouse, and it will hinder you from growing in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some marriages that continue to face disunity primarily because something has happened where one was hurt or where both were hurt, and they have carried that hurt in their hearts instead of dealing with it. And every day... Some wake up considering what they can do to cause some sort of harm to their spouse. Sometimes that means that you may not commit an action, but there is this ability to ignore them just for spite. Paul says, put that kind of attitude in prison. Do not allow it to have authority in your life, which leads us to the actions in the text, put us away the action of slander. Slander. Slander is a verbal comment about someone else to a third party that causes a person to think less of the one you are speaking about. This is the act of speaking about someone with a desire to sully their good name, reputation, or character. The word translated for slander is the word blaspheme. If we commit blasphemy, we sully the reputation of Almighty God. This is a very common response to in a marriage that must be dealt with immediately or there will be lasting consequences. If a married man spends time sharing with his friends everything that he can't stand about his wife, that is slander. The husband is demeaning. He is blaspheming the name of his wife. 
if a wife calls her girlfriends together and rags out her husband speaking down about him repeatedly, she is slandering and blaspheming his name. Slander is simply insulting your spouse to another individual. And this kills communication because the spouse views the slander as a breach of trust. I would never feel comfortable sharing my heart with my wife, Krista, if I felt that she was going to go and sully my character. Nor would she feel inclined to speak with me if she thought I was out insulting or slandering her to other people. Slander does not encourage open communication. It kills it. We move further to another action. It's abusive speech. It's right there in the text. This is descriptive of the kind of talk that destroys another person. This can include profane speech where one spouse calls the other's name. That is, the husband cusses out the spouse or calls her names laced with profanity. There are some husbands who speak to their wives as if they are dogs. Also, the wife could speak in such a manner as to destroy her husband by speaking ugly to him. This could show up from simple name-calling to degrading his ability to provide for the family. This thought of abusive speech also carries with it the idea of obscene speech. That is, offensive, immoral, perverted, or disgusting words that refer to the spouse as an object instead of a person. This is the kind of talk that would cause us to be shocked if we heard it, even from someone who did not know Christ. Paul writes to us as well in Ephesians 4 and 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. As soon as I studied this term, abusive speech, I began to take inventory of how I spoke personally to my wife. Taking inventory, it's much like uh, taking inventory of a store. You, You count all of the items that are on the shelf. Well, every single word that you speak, it's like you are putting items on the shelf. So I want to take inventory. Are the items that I am putting on the shelf of our marriage causing my wife to be encouraged and built up? Or are they tearing her down? I also wondered... I. No, we don't have the capabilities to do this, but could you imagine if we recorded every single thing that you have said to your spouse since January of 2014 to this day, and we played that recording in church? What would your response be? What would our response be? Cast abusive speech into prison. It destroys Good communication. Then there's the final action. And I know this sermon is a tough one to swallow. Does not get any better. Come back next week if you aren't angry with me following this one. There's the action of lying. Verse 9, look at it again. He says, do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, you put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So he says, put aside lying. You have a new life now. That Every single day is being renewed into the image of Jesus Christ. Do not lie. 
Having sat in uh, many counseling sessions with married couples, I have come to realize that married people lie about some of the same things. So I just put a quick little statement here together of four things that you should not lie about. Based upon sitting with others, do not lie about the money you spend. Do not lie about the people that you are spending time with. Do not lie about the places that you have been. And do not lie about your feelings with icy silence. Don't lie to each other. Lying indicates that you are hiding something. A husband cannot say that a wife has no right to look at his cell phone records. A wife has no right to say to a husband, you cannot look at these text messages. Neither have the right to exclude the other from a Facebook page. There are some who will look at their wife and say, well, this is my business and not hers. There were some who would look at a husband and say, well, this is my business and not his. But when you said, I do... Your business became her business. Her business became your business. Ultimately, it's y'all's business. But if you are hiding it, something is wrong. After putting the message down, I went back through these six busted individuals began to put a list of questions together to ask myself but I will ask you please do not lose at this point in time the opportunity to consider what you're going to do with a message like this so let me ask you the questions you answer them in your heart are you expecting your spouse to meet every one of your personal desires in life? Are you holding something against your spouse that taints everything you see in him or her? Are you finding pleasure in seeing your spouse hurt? There is a unique perversion of the mind for any husband who enjoys watching his wife curl up in the corner of the house with tears flowing from her face after what he has said. Jesus, thankfully, does not treat the church in this manner. We likewise, as men, do not have the right and what audacity to try to treat our wife in that manner. Are you talking poorly about your spouse to other people? Do 
Be very careful even in your sharing of prayer requests that your prayer needs do not jack talk your wife or your husband. Are you verbally abusing your spouse? Are you lying to your spouse about anything whatsoever? If you answer the affirmative to any of those questions and perhaps the Holy Spirit brought to mind something that is in your heart, then what action should you take here and now? The action is very simple. You should confess your sin to Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it plain. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the second step that you should take after confessing it to the Lord is taking it to your husband or your wife and confessing it to them. It's a very easy process where you simply go to your spouse and say, I have asked the Lord to forgive me. Now I'm asking you to forgive me. And please listen, if your repentance and confession before God is genuine, you will confess it to your spouse. But if there's no desire to make it right with your spouse, know this, you have not made it right with God. We cast these enemies of our soul into prison because they destroy unity. They destroy unity in a church. They destroy unity even in a marriage. What will you do with a message like this? What will you do with the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon your heart? My prayer over this week and next week is that God would revive marriages. And there are marriages all throughout this fellowship who need revival. Now, I'm not scared to say it. And if your husband repents of his sin before God and comes to you, wife, my prayer is that your heart would not be hard towards him. That you would tenderly receive his confession. And listen, and you would pour out, pour it out, grace to your spouse. It's pretty awesome when you and I confess our sin before the Lord Jesus, grace flows from his throne unhindered. How can we hold back grace toward our spouse? when they're looking for forgiveness. What will you do with it? Let's bow. Father, in Jesus' name, text of scripture is heavier, I feel, every hour. God, I don't know the condition of every single married couple in the church, but I do know just through research and plain conversation that all marriages need help 
We do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to accomplish any of these great feats of putting away anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, slander, or lying. We don't have the power, Lord. That's why you gave us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So as we turn from our sin and place our trust in you, empower us to overcome these enemies of our soul and our marriages. And may we cast them into prison and throw away the key. May we not allow them to come out and tell us what to do. God, restore that which needs restoration. Revive that which is seemingly dead. Remind us as followers of Jesus that love is not a feeling, it is a choice. And we must daily choose to love our spouses with the unconditional agape love of the Holy Spirit within. God, I trust that you're going to work in a supernatural fashion as only you can.